I promise this is a sermon about Jesus and what it means that God became a human being. But do you know what Santa's clothes were, what the color of his clothes were before they were red? Green. Green. I'm sure a number of you who have... Uh, green, for those of you who didn't hear. <laughs> I'm sure a number of you who have been coming back year after year have heard some of the traditions around Santa Claus. But a quick refresher is in order. There is no single Santa tradition as each country that celebrates Christmas has developed Santa in culturally appropriate ways and with different names. So before Santa wore red, he was dressed in various colors. The historical figure behind Santa is Saint Nicholas, a fourth century Greek bishop of the city of Myra in the south of what is now modern day Turkey. Up until a couple of centuries ago, Santa's clothes were more akin to a bishop's clothing, and his hat was either a bishop's mitre or a cardinal's cap. And this can still be seen in some European countries. But in the 1800s, the cartoonist Thomas Nash drew Santa Claus in the colors of the American Union flag, handing out presents in a military camp during the American Civil War. He drew Santa in many colors over the years for the newspaper Harper's Weekly, including the now traditional red and white with a black belt and large buckle. However, even in America, because of the large immigrant populations from Europe, Santa was still portrayed in his different clothing styles from across Europe. But then in the 1930s, Coca-Cola captured Santa Claus in a red and white suit with a caption, First knows no season. This was in an effort to boost sales in winter. And since then, and because of the success of this campaign, you seldom see Santa in anything but red and white. Religions and nation states have and still do often compete with each other for the true meaning of various symbols. But nowadays, both religions and nation-states have to compete with multinational companies too. Both companies and nation-states develop stories that claim to be the true history behind various symbols and events. And because of all the resources that they have, religions often struggle to keep up with the mass marketing that these states and companies employ. But I hope you will take heart from the nature God has always chosen to employ when communicating ideas to people, those who acknowledge him as Lord and those who don't. Our gospel reading is a perfect example of God's method. We have grown so accustomed to these stories that we do not recognize their full force in the settings they were first told. I have allowed myself some poetic license in retelling the story in a modern setting to capture something of what the story might have sounded like for its first years. In the third year of President Donald Trump's reign, six years after Xi Jinping ascended to the throne of China and just weeks after they signed their first international trade deal, President Cyril Ramaphosa called for a census in South Africa. Everyone had to return to their home village for the census so that the administration could know how to allocate resources properly. Now Yusufu, 
a humble carpenter searching for work in Freyate, had to return to his village in Ulundi because he was a descendant of King Shaka. He was betrothed to Miriam, who was with child, so she went with him. And when they got to Ilundi, the time for their delivery came. When she had given birth to her firstborn son, she wrapped him in cheesecloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because no one welcomed them into, his home, into their homes. Now in the area, there were many unemployed youth and homeless people living rough, looking out for their next meal. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and they were blinded by the light and terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of Shaka a Savior, who is your king and president. This is the sign for you to look for. You will find a child wrapped in cheesecloth and lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. It is difficult to capture the full thrust of the story, but one of the things Luke is trying to do is to capture the insignificance of this couple in the eyes of all the world around them. Many of the things the story alludes to indicates that they were poor. Joseph and Mary were two of the most common names in Israel, and there was nowhere for them to stay. Luke is being culturally sensitive, so saying there is no space at the inn is one of those hints. For the right price, there is always a place to stay, but the right price is beyond the majority of people. There are many themes in the story, but I want to draw your attention to its subtlety and the medium, and then bring it back to the competition the church has with nation states and commercial companies for the meaning of Christmas. So God becomes a human being, but not like the stories of the ancient pagans, where they appear as adults and walk amongst humans. God goes through the full 40-week gestation period and is born to poor parents and has to grow up amongst people who are oppressed by a foreign power in their own country. One of the most significant messages in this event is that God is not into quick fixes. God is not going to wave a wand and sort out all Israel's problems in the blink of an eye. The story leading up to Jesus' birth should prepare us for this, and a brief recap might help remind us what that story is. If we go back to the beginning of Genesis, we remember that God created a good earth with very good humans as his representatives. That is what being created in God's image means. It means we are his ambassadors, and we were supposed to look after his interests here on earth. But we rejected this calling and decided to do things in our own interest. As a result, we were cut off from our homeland and were unable to fulfill our calling properly. Now God had many options available to him at this stage. But to illustrate that God is not into quick fixes, I just want to talk about two of the options he had that he didn't choose. 
God could have wiped out creation and started again. There is nothing preventing God from doing that, even now. But he didn't do it then, and he isn't going to do it now. He could also have become a human then and died for the sins of humanity to free us from our bondage to sin and death. And he could have done it without going through the birthing and growing up process. But he didn't do that either. Too often, we tell the story of Jesus as though it's enough that he was born of a virgin, died on a cross, and was raised on the third day. And for that, then everything would have been sorted. But what did God do? God called a wandering nomad to get the creation process back on track. And the whole of the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 12 through to the end of Malachi, tells the story of how God worked with Abraham and his descendants to get the creation process back on track and restore the image-bearing nature of humanity. All of the Gospels start by showing how the story of Jesus ties into this longer rescue effort. Matthew with his genealogy, Mark with his quotes from Malachi and Isaiah, Luke with the song of Mary and Zechariah's prophecy, and John with the exact same words that Genesis begins with, in the beginning. This is one of the most important messages we need to hear when we hear the birth stories of Jesus. I remember listening to talks delivered at an Alpha conference by Sandy Miller, the then vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton, the birthplace of the Alpha course. He said, we, we overestimate what can be achieved in one year, and we underestimate what can be achieved in five years. In our world of instant gratification, we are often seduced into believing that the answer to our problems lies in a simple answer, often requiring us to spend large sums of money. We aren't willing to put the effort into working out the problem. The words from Brianna Vist, an American author, are perhaps a timely reminder on the true nature of solutions to our problems. Self-care is often a very unbeautiful thing. It is making a spreadsheet of your debt and enforcing a morning routine and cooking yourself healthy meals and no longer just running from your problems and calling the distraction a solution. It is often doing the ugliest thing that you have to do, like sweat through another workout or tell a toxic friend you don't want to see them anymore. All the time, and then taking deliberate mandated breaks from living to do basic things, like drop some oil into a bath and read Marie Claire and turn your phone off for the day. A world in which self-care has to be such a trendy topic is a world that is sick. Self-care should not be something we resort to because we are so absolutely exhausted that we need some reprieve from our own relentless internal pressure. True self-care is not salt baths and chocolate cake. It is making the choice to build a life you don't need to regularly escape from. And that often takes doing the thing you least want to do. The second lesson to take home from the story of Jesus 
is that God works in, through, and with humans to sort out the mess that we created. I referred earlier to God not waving a wand. That was very deliberate. The picture of a bearded white magician like Albus Dumbledore from Harry Potter seems to be the image of God that many people create in their minds when thinking about God. Then when they hear that Jesus is God incarnate, they think that Jesus is Harry Potter and that the miracles that he performed were magic without a wand. But if that were the God of the Bible, the story would look very different. We have got to look at Jesus long and hard and start forming ideas about God around Jesus. And then we need to start living into our image-bearing status. We need to become the ambassadors God created us to be, representing his interests and praying for his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. God became a human so that he could sort human problems out, and he called people to help him sort the problems out, not escape the problems. When Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He did not mean he was going to make your problems disappear instantly. He meant that he was going to help you start solving your problems instead of letting you continue creating more problems. The problems that make us so tired in the society are the problems created when we live into the false stories spread by nation states and corporate companies. When the word became flesh, he came to set you free, not to ensnare you. Will you follow this Jesus? Thank you, Philip. Let's take some quiet as we pray together and allow uh, this idea of the God we see revealed in Jesus coming to work with us and in us and through us. Allow that picture of God to settle in our minds and hearts this Christmas season.